So turn with me there. Matthew chapter 2, and we're just going to look at 11 verses. Again, the title is Worship the King. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least of the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse seven, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he came and he sent them to Bethlehem, said, go and search carefully for the young child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's read verse 12 as well. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The birth of Jesus Christ has changed the world forever for the good. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And that is what we've experienced. We uh, have the opportunity to have peace with God. We are experiencing his kindness, his favor, his, his goodwill, not man's goodwill towards one another. And that's the way we often take that passage and apply it. Goodwill to men, I need to show goodwill. Well, we can certainly uh, mimic and imitate the kindness and the favor that the Father has shown to this world by sending his Son. But it's God's goodwill to man in sending his Son to be a redeemer for us. That's the goodwill that's being referred to. And that desire of God to bring peace to us and to show goodness and kindness to us has forever changed. And what we see associated in, no matter what account of the gospel you read of the birth of Jesus, is that there was always worship going on, whether it was Anna or Simeon or whether it was the shepherds or whether it was the angels that appeared to the shepherds, worship was taking place at the time of, shortly after the birth of the Lord. And that is still a proper response today, is to worship the king, is to give him glory and to give him honor. In verses one through three, we saw that there were those that came to worship and their desire to worship caused one man, King Herod, to worry, and that worry ended up spilling over into the entire city of Jerusalem. Herod was troubled by this good news, this peace on earth, goodwill toward man. The word trouble is a Greek word, terasso, and it means to agitate, to take away peace. 
So God sent his son Jesus to bring peace, but the impact upon King Herod was no peace. It agitated him. It stirred him up. And if he was stirred up and he was agitated, then it went that all people in his kingdom near to him were going to be agitated and they were going to be troubled as well. Herod was not a nice guy. He's not one of the good guys. He was a brilliant architect. He had great uh, success at building um, throughout the land of Israel. You go to Israel and you will see some of his work. He lived from about 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., and Jesus was born just prior to his death. But Herod had an interesting background. Herod was an Idumean, or a word that you might be more familiar with is Herod was one that was a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. Now, that's kind of a simplification because there was some others that... uh, intermarried into that family down through the ages, but I'll leave it at that. And that brings up an interesting point. Who is Esau? Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He is a father um, to those 12 sons through whom all of Israel came. But his twin brother, Esau, he was a different man, and he did not, was not connected to the nation of Israel. And the story goes back way in time. As a matter of fact, it goes back even before they were born. It goes back to the time when their mother was carrying them, and she wondered at the violent struggle that was going inside her body as these two children were being carried. And she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, you have two children, two nations within you. And they are warring, and the Lord went on to prophesy, and the younger, Jacob, um, will be over the the older, Esau. And so there was this prophecy that there would be this turmoil, and that's exactly what happened. As they grew, there was turmoil in the house, and Jacob deceived his brother Esau, and this caused a bitter rivalry. Eventually, Jacob comes back into the land, and he is fearing for his life because of the bitter rivalry. He does not die. There's a relative peace that happens. But down through the ages, as Jacob's family grows and becomes the nation of Israel, and Esau's family grows and becomes the Edomites, there is a hostility. As the children of Israel are coming out of the land of Egypt, back into their promised land, they, are, they ask permission to pass through the land of the Edomites, and they say no. And you see this hostility that was still in existence. And down through the ages, there was conflict after conflict. The Lord even wrote a whole entire book, Obadiah, that highlights some of this conflict that exists between the Edomites and the Israelites. But this becomes a prophetic picture The struggle was not just between two twins in a womb. It became the struggle between two nations. And then it comes down to this very moment where you have a descendant of Esau, Herod, and you have a descendant of Jacob, Jesus, and the struggle and the fight is still going on. It's amazing that you would find this happening all the way. And ultimately, that's what the whole struggle and the whole fight was was aimed at. 
There's places, and I'm not going to take the time, but read Obadiah, where it talks about even in the last days how there will be a struggle between these two nations till the very end. But Herod, this Edomite, he was a paranoid man. And history says that it was safer to be a pig than to be one of his sons. Because if you're a pig and he got mad, at least you would live. But if you were close to him in relationship, he was a paranoid guy. And so if he heard that somebody, you know, was interested in his kingdom, even the threat of it, he would begin to kill wives, he began to kill children. And now he's just had these men travel from the east with long distance. And they say, we've come to worship the one that's been born, the king of the Jews. Everybody in that courtroom, when they heard these words, would have gone, oh my goodness, we are all in trouble now. Because he was troubled, and they were all going to be troubled as well. You know, Jesus is still worthy of worship. And we need to yield to him as the king over our life. And there are, to this very day, the same two responses that we saw when the announcement came that the king of the Jews has been born. There are those that will come and they will worship him, but there are others who will look at that and they'll be, they'll be worried about it. It'll trouble them. It won't set well. And they will not yield to that lordship and that kingship of Jesus. We keep on reading there in chapter two. We pick up at verses four through six. And we read that they inquire as to where this king would be born. And so they bring in the chief priests and the scribes, and they say, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because there was a prophecy that had been given by Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written around 740 B.C., some 700 years earlier, we read, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of, in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this is that prophecy of, of Jesus coming and being born. And Bethlehem is noted in history for a few key events, right? We know that Jacob buried his wife Rachel there. Ruth met her husband Boaz, who was in the lineage of King David. King David grew up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. And Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. And so Bethlehem was a significant place. And when they asked, where is he going to be born? They immediately said, the Messiah, the one who's going to be ruler over Israel, without question, he is going to be born a couple of miles south of us in this little town, this little village, not a town, a little village called Bethlehem. And so they were able to quickly identify it. One of the great things about scripture and prophecy in particular, which is what this Michael was saying, he, where he's gonna be born, is that it helps us to identify who really is this king of Israel. Who really is this one that we must worship and we must yield to? Finding out somebody's identity is a big deal. And we, we know about that a lot of time, a lot of money is spent to make certain that we can properly identify a person. Well, listen, there's nobody that's more important to identify who's ever lived than the one who's said to be the ruler over Israel. 
the one who came to save mankind. How can we really know who that person is? Haven't a lot of people claimed to be the Messiah? And the answer is, yeah, a lot of them have claimed. But only one who's born in Bethlehem has any right to that. Among the hundreds of prophecies that are given concerning Jesus, this is one. And so as we read that he's born in Bethlehem, it helps us to identify who he really is. For these wise men traveling from the east, it was helpful to find where they could come and give that worship. Verses seven and eight, we see Herod's hypocrisy. He says, well, I want to worship too. Don't believe it. He had no desire to worship this little baby Jesus who was born king of the Jews. He had no interest at all. It was hypocrisy. He wanted to find out where this child was born so he could then send out his kill squad to go and wipe out the children. He asked them, well, when did you actually see the star? And so as he inquired, he began to find out, all right. So this is around the age that this child would have been born and he began to determine which children should be put to death. It's estimated at this time in history that Bethlehem would have only had a population of about five to 600 people in entirety. So based upon what we know historically of uh, you know, small children born to a village in this part of the world, they estimate there would have been maybe only as many as 20 to 30 young boys that would have fit this age of two and under that Herod is gonna to target to kill. But those 20 or 30, boy, you make no mistake about it, to those parents, there is nothing more precious than that. And, and this guy is so hard and he is so callous that he determines where, um, when, were they, when was this king born and tell me where he is. So he wants to go and just kill one, but if they are not gonna return and they're not as we read, then he can just attack this entire village and that is exactly what he's going to do. Again, we see the hostility growing and uh, in a new way um, not just against the one child, but as, as you read through the Gospels, that he ends up soldering every young child that was in this village, and the hostility between the Edomites and the Israelites just continue. But who were these men that had come from the east? Well, we don't get a whole lot more of the details of who they are than what we have right here. But we do know something about from history about these men that lived about this time. Even an Old Testament passage in Daniel chapter five, verse 11, we read this. There is, a, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king made him chief of the magicians astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. So it's believed that they were part of this group here, of course, for hundreds of years removed from Daniel, but that this was their group. They were those that looked at the stars. They were those that advised kings. They were those that tried to give uh, meaning and significance in the time of chaos. So they were counselors. Well, this group of men, and you notice we're, we don't know how many wise men there were, I know if you go and look out at the uh, little manger scene, you're going to see three, right? Uh, maybe there was three. 
Maybe there was more than that. But that there was a larger company than just these wise men is pretty well agreed that they would have come with a, quite a traveling crew. And as they came, they had seen something in their homeland. They had seen a star. And so there's been a lot of speculation about this star. We'll talk more about it as we get a little further into this story. But they see this and it causes them to travel. It was a, a believed fact in these days that when um, a, a leader was about to die or a leader was about to be born, that there would be some sign in the heavens. They saw a sign and they determined when they saw this, this is telling us that the king of the Jews is going to be born. Now listen. Did they have further insight that God himself revealed to them? Were they studying the prophecies of scripture and coming to the conclusion that this is about the time in which a Messiah should come? They had the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel was among their group, so certainly that is possible. But they saw the star and they were able with the Lord's wisdom to know that star is signifying the birth of a king and we need to travel to this location. There was something about this light in the sky that helped them and guided them to the very um, uh, country of Israel where Jesus was born. We read in verses 9 through 11 that these men came and they worshipped the child. They found the child. How did they find it? Verse 9, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And so they worshiped and they gave these gifts that we'll take a look at in just a moment. But you know, worship is an appropriate response to Jesus. Worship is the right response for us to have. Worship means to declare the greatness of the Lord. It's to yield your life. It's to put yourself in a place that you acknowledge that Jesus is, is God, that he is Savior, that he is Redeemer. This is what they were doing, and this is what every person should do. But we've read a little bit now here about this star. They saw it in the east. They told Herod about the star they had seen, and that they came to the land of Israel because they knew there was born the king of the Jews. And then from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, just two to three miles away, this star led them and guided them to the very residence of the Lord. So there's been a lot of speculation as to what kind of star was this? What kind of star are we talking about? And as you follow and you read, some would say, well, this was the tale of Halley's comment, uh, comment that happened around 11 BC. That doesn't really line up with the time of the birth of Jesus. Others would say that it was a new star that appeared in the sky for the very first time or that it was a wandering star or that it was planets like Jupiter aligning together and, you know, signifying. But all of that, even if that could lead them to um, Jerusalem, how could a star or a planet or a comet lead them two miles to a specific address, like 101 Bethlehem Lane. That's where Jesus is. How, how does a star do that? And so this has caused a lot of questions. I think the one thing that you can say without question is that this was the Lord's doing. 
He did something in the sky that allowed these men to know where to travel, and then even once they got to Jerusalem, where to, what house to go to when they got down to Bethlehem. Here's the interesting thing about the word star. The word star can certainly refer to a light in the, in the heavens, but a star can also refer to angelic beings. It can refer to, at times, false teachers. Um, a star could even refer to um, you know, the, the messengers that were in the book of Revelation to each of the seven churches. So going all the way back to an early church father by the name of Chrysostom, he speculated that this star that led them to the house was actually an angel. Others have said, you know, maybe it was a star, maybe it was an angel, but maybe it was just the Shekinah glory of God, like what the children of Israel experienced in the wilderness, and how it was a, a light by night, a pillar of fire by night, and a cloud by day. And so there's possibilities out there, all of which are dependent upon the working of God. And so we may never know in this lifetime exactly how all of this worked, but we have the testimony of scripture that tells us that these men knew they had found the right house, they had found the right child, and they were exceedingly great, and they were ready to worship. Some have made a big deal of this and said, look, you can't believe this. There's no way a star can do this. But just a little bit of further inquiry about the Greek word for star and you begin to find out, oh, it's used in other ways. Not just for a, a, you know, a luminary in the sky, but as I said, for even other um, angelic beings, for false teachers and a negative light it's used. So however God did it, he did it. And it was miraculous. And they were surprised at being led in this way. And they were grateful and joyful for it. I don't know which of these is accurate, but I sure love the idea of it just being the Shekinah glory of God appearing over that house and saying, this is the place. It's, we shouldn't be surprised that the one who is the light of the world would have some kind of phenomenon of light at his birth. And so this is what took place. Well, they came to the house there in verse 11, and as they came in, they came to worship the child. Now you remember, when Jesus was born, he was born among the animals, right? He was laid in a manger, uh, a stone trough that they would have used for feeding animals. He was in a stable. But now he's coming to a house. The, the wise men are coming to a house where Jesus is. So some time has, has passed. Um, and we would think some two years or, or, or less since he was born, because this is who Herod is going to target to kill, is those that are two years and younger. But they come to the house, and as they come, they come with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each of these gifts and all of these gifts together, they tell us one thing. They recognized that this child was someone special. And they brought gifts that were worthy of somebody who was a king. We have other writings, secular writings, where these type of gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh were 
brought to others that were you know, of royalty or significance at their birth. So this is very in keeping with a gift that would have been appropriate for somebody that was born the king of the Jews. And they brought these gifts, and it was a way to worship. It was a way to say, you are worthy. We're bringing the very best we have to offer to you. I mean, the gold part, we get it. That's still significant in our culture and day. The frankincense and myrrh, that might not mean as much to us, but in their day, that was a valued commodity. And to bring that was to bring something of great worth and value. Of the gift of gold, well, often gold is something that is associated with the royalty and a, a, a king having gold. It represents that he is Lord. He is a, that, that one that is a king and over our life. I find it interesting in Psalm 72, verses 10 through 15, looking forward to a time in the millennial kingdom of the gifts that will be brought to King Jesus as he rules and reigns over the earth, a future time. It's not yet happened. But as we read this, it says, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him, for he will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also, and him who has no helper, he will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. Verse 15, and he shall live. And the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. So that this gift is meant to be a, a sign of worship is clear. But it's also a gift that's talked about that will be brought to Jesus during the kingdom. I think this is referring to, again, uh, it's a way. I'm not dogmatic about it. I wouldn't want to uh, argue with anybody over it. But it certainly seems to signify the gift that is worthy of a king. Then it says that he brings frankincense. Now this was um, a, a, a fragrant um, spice that would be would have been prominent in the worship in the temple. For the grain offering, and then the incense, and the tabernacle of meeting, this was one of the elements that would be part of the worship. If you would have gotten near to the tabernacle of meeting, you would have felt, excuse me, not felt, you would have smelt frankincense. You would have smelt it. You well, what is that? That is frankincense. You would have been very familiar with it. If you were a priest that would have been tending to the altar of incense, as that frankincense, uh, one of the compounds that was, or one of the elements that was in that compound was being offered up, you would have taken on that fragrance. If you would have been walking home that day and the wind was blowing into your face and somebody was behind you, they would have smelled the, uh, that that aroma that you had been tending to all day. Frankincense is first mentioned in the Bible there in the book of Exodus as part of the holy anointing uh, incense. So frankincense was very much associated with the priest work. And Jesus was not only a king, he was also a priest. Whether or not this is the identification that should be made between the gift of frankincense and him being a priest, 
You can't state it dogmatically, but to me, it's enough for us to consider because it's so associated with the work of a priest. And if you are with us on Sunday morning, you know that we're reading about Jesus and how he is the, our high priest and that he serves on our behalf. And so that he would have this frankincense is not surprising. You know, the frankincense would have never been used in the sin offering. It had many other places that it would have been involved with. And again, on the a grain offering or in the, uh, the, the incense that was put on the altar, but not with any of the sin offerings. The third element that they brought, the third gift, was the gift of myrrh. Now, myrrh was an embalming ointment for the dead, among other things. But that is one thing for certain. John 19.39 says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. That's a lot of embalming elements. So he brought myrrh. This is talking about bringing it to Jesus after he had died. Um, We also read in Mark 15.23 that while Jesus was on the cross, that they offered him myrrh to drink it was a numbing agent. They mixed it in with some other things, and it was a concoction that was helped to bring some numbness. In Isaiah 60, verse 6, again, speaking of the millennial kingdom, we read, The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, or frankincense specifically, and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. So we can find that, that two of these gifts are going to be brought to Jesus in the millennial kingdom, that one of them was there at the time of his death, and myrrh is often associated with the passing of somebody because of the way in which it was used. So Jesus receives the gold as a, a worthy king. He receives the frankincense as one that will serve as a priest, being our our intermediary, going before us. But he also is going to receive this myrrh as one who's going to need to be embalmed, one who's going to die as the Lamb of God, our Redeemer. I know some will say they, they don't see any significance, but to me, it is right there, and we'll find out when we're in the presence of the Lord. But that Jesus is king, that he is our high priest, and that he is the lamb that was slain for our sins. That is without question. Whether or not each of these elements should be tied to that function and aspect of his life, well, that's where a little bit of debate is there. But in my mind, this is exactly what they're doing. They are foreshadowing the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so they bring these gifts to him, and then they are warned in verse 12 that they should return a different direction. They traveled a long way to come and worship this one that had been born, the Savior of the world. We read earlier on in chapter 1 of Matthew, and we'll read through the entire gospel of Matthew, that Jesus was the Lamb of God, that he came and he was born that he might die. Why did God send his only son into this earth? He wants to redeem you. He loves you. He wants to show goodwill towards mankind, and he wants there to be peace between him and mankind. But there is only one way 
that there can be peace between God and man, and that is through the Redeemer Jesus. He died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. That death on the cross was to take on the penalty of our sin in his physical body. Can you imagine this? And you read it again in Matthew chapter one, that Jesus was born to take away the sin of the world. For any Jew that would have heard this, they would have known immediately the only way in which sin is covered is by the shedding of blood. At the very announcement of the birth of Jesus, there is the announcement that he is going to die, that he's going to redeem. This certainly would have struck them somewhat of a mystery, but boy, as his life unfolded, and then as he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, it all made perfect sense of why he had come to be that one that could be like man, born as a man, but was sinless because he was God, and then he could go to the cross and he could die. Without putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, without doing what these wise men did, to bend their knee and to worship Jesus, there's no way we can ever have forgiveness of sins. That's it, that's the only way. And some will say, isn't that narrow? And the answer is, extremely narrow. It is so narrow that salvation can only come through one man, the man, the God-man, Jesus, born in Bethlehem as prophesied by the, the prophet Micah, and that he died and then he rose from the dead some 33 years later, all in fulfillment of what has been said. That is the only way in which salvation has, has been provided. There was no way prior to Jesus and there is no way after Jesus. Everything either looked forward to the coming of Christ or it looks back to his coming. And this is it. You must deal with Jesus. And again, like with Herod and the wise men, you either worship Jesus or it troubles you. It either is something that brings great joy like they experienced or something that upsets your life. And Jesus is still having that same impact upon people's hearts and lives today. Don't you see that? You see some that have great joy when they find out that Jesus died for their sins and you see others, they will get uptight and they'll get upset at the very idea that you must come to this Jesus and worship him that you might have forgiveness of sins. And it will trouble them and it will agitate them. But Jesus remains the same. He is exactly who the Bible claims he is. He is the son of God and he is the one that you must come to to have salvation. Now, here we sit, some 2,000 years later, and we have a full understanding of who this one was that was born in Bethlehem, of the hope that we have of everlasting life because he paid for our sins, but you must come to him. It is not sufficient to have knowledge alone. There's a lot of people that have knowledge of something and never act upon it, and then they end up living with regret. And I mean, I think we all probably could dream up, a, or not dream up, but we all could probably relate a story of something that we should have acted upon that we knew, but we didn't do. Well, 
You can know about Jesus and you can know that he came to this earth, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he died on the cross for, this, uh, for sins of the world and he rose three days later from the dead. But if you don't actually put your faith and trust in him and embrace him as Lord and Savior, then it's just, it'll be one more thing that you knew that did not provide you benefit. You must receive him. And I know most of you in here have already done that. But for those of you that have, the majority of, it, of you in here, I just want to ask you, do you still find exceedingly great joy coming into the presence of your King Jesus to worship him? Do you still have an overwhelming sense of, we have found the Messiah. I have found the King. Who am I that I would be led so miraculously to him. I mean, we can look at the star that was over the house, but what did it take to get you to the place where you understood where Jesus was and who he was and what he's done for you? What did God have to do in your life to bring you to that place where you would bend your knee and say, I worship this one? The Lord is faithful and he is working in your life and he is that one who serves as a priest and he's going before us. He's there to minister to us. He is that one who died for us and rose from the dead. If you've yet to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to do that. And if you have, well then spend the rest of this weekend with exceedingly great joy in your heart because you have found where the Redeemer is. And now it's not just a house in Bethlehem. Where's the Redeemer now? He dwells within our hearts. As it says in John, he has made our hearts his home. This is where Jesus resides today. If you have put your faith and trust in him, and that is a cause for great rejoicing. Do you agree? Let's worship the Lord. Lord, we do thank you and we praise you for this knowledge that you've brought to us. Lord, that you loved us enough to send your son into a world that you knew would reject him. Lord, we, how, how does th thank you even become close to being a sufficient expression of our gratitude? But Lord, we do say thank you and we do worship you. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be full with great joy, knowing that maybe we had traveled many years in this life to come to that place where one day we discovered who you are because your star, your light led us to the place to see that your son is savior. While we're praying, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and savior, you've only maybe heard the story or parts of the story, but yet you've never come to Christ and you've never surrendered yourself to him. You've never knelt before him as king and Lord and savior. Then you need to do that tonight. Tonight's the night for you to receive the greatest gift that Christmas has ever seen. And that's a gift of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. So receive him. Right where you sit, pray and say, Lord, thank you for that gift. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for forgiving me. The Lord wants to have peace with you. He wants that enmity to be removed. He wants you to know the fullness of joy. And he, as a faithful high priest, has come and he serves and has made that way possible. If you are a believer, then are you fellowshipping? Are you worshiping him still? Are you still bending the knee before King Jesus? 
Are you still letting him have that place of authority and rulership over your life? Are you in that place where you're challenging the Lord and how he wants you to live and how he wants you to spend your life? But what a great night it would be tonight to kneel afresh before Jesus and say, you have first place in my life. Sit upon the throne of my life, Jesus. Rule over me. I want no other. I need no other. I return to that place of fellowship. Oh, Lord, we pray that our, our, our eyes would be wide open tonight and tomorrow and then each and every day, Lord, through the rest of our lives to see the, the wonder of the Christmas story. That, Lord, they wouldn't be, become clouded with the, the busyness of life and the things that take place, but our eyes would be wide open and set upon you rejoicing for the life that we have. Lord, we agree with the psalmist. Who are we that you would have anything to do with us? Who are we that you would reveal yourself to us? Lord, we worship you and we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen.